Acts chapter 4. In verse 1, now as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly agitated because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Now it happened that on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem and Annas the high priest was there and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in their midst they began to inquire by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them rulers and elders of the people If we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man as to how this man has been saved from his sickness, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and comprehended that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply But when they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they began to confer with one another, saying, What should we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy sign has happened through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But lest it spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus." But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this sign of healing had occurred. Most of you, I'm sure, know the name of Ben Cartwright from Bonanza. Fewer of you, perhaps none of you, know the name of Peter Cartwright. No relation. He was converted to Christ in a camp meeting in the backwoods of Kentucky in his late teens, and he joined then the Methodist Church. It was only a few years later in 1802 that Cartwright entered into the ministry as a circuit rider for the Methodist Church. And he rode in the state of Illinois, having fled Tennessee because of their stance on slavery, he would ride over 400 miles in the backwoods on a regular circuit preaching Christ from town to town. 
One historian called Cartwright, quote, a determined, uncompromising, fearless frontier minister who could not be intimidated by frontier roughs. He was affectionately known as the backwoods preacher and God's plowman. One Sunday morning, he was scheduled to preach, and his deacons came to him to inform him that President Andrew Jackson was in the congregation. And Cartwright happened to be an extemporaneous preacher. He did not use notes. He kind of flew by the seat of his pants, and he had a reputation for saying whatever he believed the Lord would have him to say, regardless of how the congregation might respond. And the deacons implored him not to say anything that would offend the president. He stood up to preach and he said, I understand that President Andrew Jackson is here and I've been requested to guard, to guard my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. <laughs> the congregation, understandably, was concerned about how Jackson might take such a, an introduction to the message and... Uh, Jackson reportedly told Cartwright after the message, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. Now, I'm not here to preach a message about how to become a Cartwright or a backwoods preacher. But I do want to ask this question this morning, and, and, and it is this. How, how is it that we might become bolder in our resolve to preach Christ and more confident in our preaching of Christ, more consistent in it. And this morning we'll pick up where we left off last week. Peter and John, you remember, along with a formerly crippled man who had been healed by Peter, are standing in the very midst of this semicircle, a very erudite, astute, august, religious mucky-mucks. The who's who of Israel are there and these men have been detained. You remember they were imprisoned for their preaching and they have been detained and they are now standing before the highest court and their lives, frankly, are on the line. Things had not gone well. You remember with Jesus standing before this court, they had delivered Jesus over to the Romans, very same people. And so, Peter opens his mouth and preaches this message, a very powerful message, explaining essentially three things. Number one, stemming from the question that the council asked, who did this and by what authority, Peter tells them the miraculous healing of the man crippled from birth had been accomplished by the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, of Jesus of Nazareth. It is this very same Jesus, Israel's Messiah, God's anointed, whom these men had placed on a cross some weeks earlier. And Peter tells them right to their face, this is the very Jesus that you put to death and God raised to life again. And then thirdly, he tells them that this Jesus is the only name given among men by which you must be saved. It was a bold message, it was a confrontative message, it was a message in which Peter did not flinch under the most intimidating and threatening of circumstances. 
and it was about to get bolder still. And my hope is that we can glean perhaps this morning a few helpful insights. I know this is a very familiar passage to you. But my hope is that we can glean some things from it as we observe Peter and John before this Sanhedrin. Let's, let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Father, this is your word. and You have sent it forth and will send it forth even now and are sending it forth across the face of this earth to accomplish whatever it is that you have determined to do. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that you would build your church. I pray this morning that you would edify and feed your people. I pray this morning that you would conform us still further to the likeness of Christ. I pray that you would untie our tongues and make us determined in heart to be faithful to declare the glories of the Christ we love. And Lord, all of this so that Christ might be known, that sinners might be saved, and that you might be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Let's pick up in verse 13. Now as they, that is the Sanhedrin, observed the confidence of Peter and John and they comprehended that they were uneducated and ordinary men, note that it says they were marveling. In other words, the council listened to the words that Peter was preaching and they listened to the apostles. John is included in all of this. They listened to the apostles long enough to have heard more than Peter and John actually said. Luke really is breaking down the moment. He's giving us a play-by-play, and we gain insight into the members of the Sanhedrin's thinking. There were a number of characteristics about Peter and John that puzzled them. That's why they were marveling. They were astonished. They were perplexed. They were perplexed because the disciples or the apostles were not only informed about biblical truth, but they were also, in their own simple way, very articulate. There was a confidence about them and their preaching. There was a boldness and a candor and openness. There was what most of us want when we speak publicly or have to enter into a difficult conversation with someone. We don't want to be hung up on all the what ifs and yeah buts and hoping to sort of measure everything to make sure that we're, we're putting all of this across in a way that's, that's not going to offend any. Peter was just free. And he proclaimed the truth. And he did it without a conflicted heart. Their preaching, if you will, was unencumbered by the fear of man. It was unencumbered by any sort of political posturing. You never could have accused Peter and John of being really walking on eggshells for fear that this might cost them their life. No, they were were cut loose, clear as a bell, straight down the tracks, plain spoken. And it was not just their confidence that impressed the Sanhedrin. It was also that they were uneducated, 
agramatos, grammar. They, they were without grammar. They were those who were unlearned. They had not been to rabbinical school. They had no formal education. They were not theologically trained. And beyond that, they were idiotes. Can you figure out what that word means? They were common. They were uninstructed, unrefined. They were amateurs. They were lacking in status. There were no letters after their name. In the words of one elitist politician, they were deplorable. There's a very definite sense that in the minds of these austere men, there is condescending attitude toward these people. They were unlettered and unskilled. They were Galileans. They were common men. They had calluses on their hands. They smelled like fish. They were union boys. And these were white-collar folks who had all the, all the benefits of an education and, a, and money and an upbringing. These were the one percenters in Jewish society. And here are the apostles, just blunt and outspoken and completely unvarnished in all that they are saying. Their arguments are unassailable. They called out sin and they named names and these men were under the conviction of all that was being spoken. And it's intriguing to me that this brought back to them as they watched these men, as they listened, as they observed their confidence and their clarity. People did not speak to the Sanhedrin like this. As they observed all of that, it brought back by association, this very reminiscence of someone or something they had experienced in the past, it all began to come back to them by way of powerful recollection. recollection. Look down at the end of verse 13. They began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Ah, these are those guys. Now, it may have been certainly that, that, that they, they, they had seen them with Jesus. They were very familiar with Jesus' ministry. They had been in close proximity, particularly Peter and John, throughout all of Jesus' trials. And eventually, at least in John's case, the crucifixion. The scriptures tell us that John himself was known by the high priest, or at least his family, it may be that they just recognized them, they saw them, but I think it's probably likely that in listening to Peter and John, the council began to see something they had seen before. The council began to hear things in a, in a boldness and a clarity and with an authority that they had heard before. The same spirit speaking through Jesus is speaking through his disciples and all of a sudden, they begin to see that these, these men are like their master. They declared the truth unflinchingly. They spoke plainly and with confidence. They were courageous in the face of power. They spoke the word with simplicity and authority. They were not quoting others. They were 
speaking the truth directly and they were relying on the power of the scripture to bring conviction by the spirit of God. And like Jesus, these apostles could expose hypocrisy. They could expose the the rank unbelief that existed in these men. They were laid bare before the powerful preaching of Peter and John. They could cut to the heart of the matter. And they exposed all the pride and all of the posturing that these men were tied up in. Peter stuns them with the boldness of his words and by his demeanor. But then standing right between Peter and John was very powerful physical evidence that backed these men up. They saw Peter, they saw John, and in between them, they see a man who was formerly crippled. They knew it well. The temples were, you know, that was their place. These were their grounds. And they knew that man used to sit by the beautiful gate day after day after day begging alms from the Jews. They knew full well that this man had spent a lifetime as a cripple. And they also knew full well now that he was standing uh, on his own two feet. And it was irrefutable evidence of two things. Number one, that Peter and John were apostles, that they were sent from God and with the authority of God to actually be the mediator of this kind of miracle in the life of somebody. And secondly, it validated the message that they preached as true. And look at it, it left them speechless. Verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, They had nothing to say in reply. Crickets. Think of it. Seventy or so people in the Sanhedrin. Seventy. These men always had lots to say. And you could have heard a pin drop. They were perplexed and they were exposed and they were absolutely gobsmacked. Their lips were zipped. Luke 21, 15, after telling his disciples that they would be persecuted and brought before the magistrates to bear witness, Jesus promised them, listen to the promise, I will give you words and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. That is exactly what's going on. In fact, the text is very emphatic. It literally reads this way, nothing they had to contradict. There was nothing. They were wide-eyed and utterly lost for words. And the boldness and the simple eloquence of Peter in his defense of the gospel indicted them in their sin, and it came with so much power, they had no response whatsoever. They were choking on their tongues. And this is a good place to pull over, beloved, and just recognize this reality. This group of men from the moment that Jesus became public in his ministry, had been seeking and seeking and seeking some more to destroy him. It is this group of men who turned Christ over to the Romans to be crucified 
And yet here in the kindness and mercy of God, God brings yet another preacher right into their midst and he stops up their mouth in sin. They have nothing to say. They cannot contradict. They cannot say anything in opposition. And can I say to you that this is the moment that they should take to heart. This is the moment they should humble themselves and finally acknowledge all that they're saying is true. They should break under all that's been proclaimed to them. They should quietly stand, walk out the door, flip out the lights, go home, fall on their knees, and consider what's been said, and they ought to be repentant, and yet here again they will harden themselves. This is what we see throughout the Gospels. They spurned Jesus. They mocked him. They grumbled among themselves. They dismissed Christ. You remember, we were not born of fornication. If you can't beat the message, you just go after the messenger. And they were even wrong about that, weren't they? You remember when the paralytic was healed and their only response is, who is this man who forgives sins? Blasphemer. And we read over and over again, they plotted to kill him and that they were looking for an opportune time to seize him. And over and over, Jesus brings them face to face with their hypocrisy and their hardness of heart, with their unbelief, to the point that they are just flummoxed. They cannot reason with Jesus. They cannot overcome the logic by the Spirit of God of Peter and John And in unbelief, they just will not have it. What do you think these men would give today to have just one more opportunity? What do you think these men might give today to just have Jesus send yet one more time, one more gracious warning, just one more time, shut my mouth so that I can see and that I might turn Friend, these men are long dead and their fate is long sealed. But there isn't a person here this morning who still does not have time. To acknowledge and admit what the Bible says so clearly about each and every one of us that we are sinners who are alienated from God. And that God loved us enough to send his son as a sacrifice for sin. And he raised him from the dead. And he calls you to bow the knee and to repent, to turn from trusting in your own goodness, to turn from trusting in your own ability to be uh, uh, law-abiding, to turn from your sin and to hope in Christ, to put your faith in Christ. This is not time to grumble. And this is not time for anger at me or at God or at the Bible or at your parents or at anybody else. This is time for you to take to heart 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to take your pride in your hand and to bow your knee before his cross and tell him you want to follow him and seek his forgiveness. And he will abundantly pardon. The scriptures tell us that. He would have pardoned these men. And here they are, dug in and, and, and stiff-necked, and they are facing yet another humiliating defeat. They have been outmatched by a bunch of uneducated fishermen who are under the full power of the Holy Spirit. And they are convicted, and yet they're, they're, they're like a kid playing checkers. Did you ever do this, or have you ever been part of a checker game like this where you've backed a, a, a 10-year-old, in your 60-year-old skills at checkers, you have backed a 10-year-old into a corner. They've got no move. And you can't get them to move their piece so that you can do that final jump. You just, they just won't do it. They just, they just clear, they, they, they flip the checkerboard, they get up and they walk away, and they, that game's stupid, right? You've been there. That's what these guys are like spiritually. They've been outmaneuvered in every way, shape, and form, and they just want to flip the board. They will not submit to the truth. They will not admit their sin. They will not, and so they will die in their sins. The implications of the healed man are so obvious So they ask, what are we going to do with these men? And for starters, they're going to do what any self-respecting group of men will do when they are stymied by an inconvenient truth. They will call a timeout and they will huddle up. And they send Peter and John and the healed man out of their midst so that they can strategize. Verse 15, but when they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, that is Peter and John and the and the healed man, they began to confer with one another. When in doubt, hold a conference. And they were in a quandary. They needed to deliberate. They needed to put their heads together and figure out what are we going to do. Repentance is obviously not an option. And so what are we going to do with what we cannot deny? And so the question is posed in verse 16, what should we do with these men and it's here, beloved, that you begin to see the biased nature of unregenerate mankind. You see that a hard heart is, is not sandstone, it's granite. Listen to their reasoning. Put yourself there in their midst. You're just a, a law-abiding a member of the Sanhedrin. You're a Sadducee. Put yourself in their midst. And imagine hearing these words. For the fact that a noteworthy sign has happened through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. I mean, they make three concessions in this that should have got them thinking. We've seen, we, we see before us this noteworthy sign. That's been, a, that's been accomplished, achieved, mediated, if you will, between these apostles. It was noteworthy, they said. It was, it was outstanding. It was conspicuous. There was, there, there was something obvious and unmistakable about this. Notice that Luke did not use the word miracle. He used the word sign, which is one of his favorite words. 
He's like the Apostle John who also loves this word. And a sign points to something. The point was not just that Jesus showed compassion by healing a crippled man. The point was that Jesus is risen and ascended and has power to do what none can do and that this man had been both physically healed and spiritually saved by Jesus. He is alive, he is well, he is the one with whom you have to do and you had better repent. They knew that this was the activity of God. You remember the man had been leaping and giving God credit for what had happened. And Peter had told them that in no uncertain terms that this man stands before you whole and healed because of, of Christ, because of the power of the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And it was obvious that it had happened. They acknowledged that, right? That it had happened at the hands of Peter and John, which confirmed their ministry, that they were sent of God and they should be heeded. That's the first thing they concede. And then secondly, they concede that, that, that a whole group of people in Jerusalem saw it. They knew it could be verified by all the people who had been present at the temple that afternoon. It was apparent, the text says. It was manifest. It's a word that means to shine. It had shone upon a lot of people. In fact, they say, uh, all who live in Jerusalem, this is, again, rhetorical overstatement. We do the same thing when we, when we say everybody knows that. Well, not everybody does know that, but most people do. And this is the point. There was a massive number of people who had seen and knew what had happened. How many were saved that day? At least 5,000. And as we pointed out last week, if that only refers to the men it might have been as many as fifteen or 20,000. You add that to those that were being added to the church day by day and the 3,000 that were saved on Pentecost. We're talking tens of thousands of people who were aware of what went down with a crippled beggar. You're sitting in the midst and whoever's speaking makes this statement. And we cannot deny any of this. Which is a negative way of saying it's true. It's obvious. It's plain. You think there's an agenda here? What would you have said sitting in that room? What, what, what would you have been thinking? They knew the truth, but they just refused to acknowledge it. They wished they could deny it. But in the language of Romans 1.18, they are going to very overtly suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They're going to turn their back on it. So the same Sanhedrin demonstrates again that it is a kangaroo court. This is nothing but a sham. This is a mockery of justice. They're suppressing truth. They're not trying to get to the bottom of it. And any self-respecting, sincere member of the Sanhedrin would have seen and heard the duplicity of the council. They would have gotten up and, and resigned, and they would have repented. So the dilemma is obvious, isn't it? 
They don't want these men preaching anymore about a resurrected Jesus, and they also realize that they have to cope with the popularity of these men who did this miracle. The people were beside themselves with enthusiasm and gladness for what God had done in this man's life, and this poses a real problem for them. Verse 17 Here's their great concern. But lest it spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. In other words, we've got to get a lid on this thing. If people find out what's transpired here today, we are going to lose our place and our nation. You see, that's the way they thought about it. They knew that they had, they were, they were, they were uh, uh, Judaistic nobility. They knew that they were the one percenters. They, they perceived themselves as the teachers of the people and that the people were, were under their care and their concern. You remember Jesus said of them in those consecutive, woe to you hypocrites, woe to you, woe to you, that are at the end of the book of Matthew. You remember that he says to them, you guys have seated yourselves in the chair of Moses. I didn't put you there. These are false shepherds. These are not people who take care of those under their care. They're using them. And we cannot have the name of Jesus spreading among the people. That would be a disaster. Jesus is always the issue, isn't he? Always. His person his power, his salvation, his resurrection. What kind of wrath do you think these men received? Preventing the people of Israel, preventing those under their care. from finding their Messiah. They were indeed of their father, the devil, just as Jesus told them. They stood against God. They stood opposed to God's purposes. They were in the way And they kept the people from the very remedy that they needed for their sin. And Stephen's going to point this out later in chapter 7 very directly. And you remember what they did to him. I mean, if these people, if this news about Jesus continues to spread, these people are going to realize that we were the ones responsible for crucifying. And that is going to cost us everything. And so they just resort to intimidation to get them to back down. They, they warn them. That's a very strong word that talks about th- threatening harm to somebody. They, they had settled then on a gospel suppression plan, and the, and the suppression plan was just this. We're going to threaten these guys, and we're going to make them shake, and then they'll go out and they'll close their mouths. So with all that agreed, they call the men back before the council in verse 18. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all 
in the name of Jesus. If we put together verse 17 and 18 together, the the gist of this prohibition would be like this. You may not speak to any man privately or teach publicly the people anything, not a word about Jesus at any time and under any circumstances. Do you understand? One commentator said, quote, ironically, the early church believers had to be commanded to be quiet while many modern ones have to be commanded to speak. They put a blanket moratorium on speaking the name of Jesus. Do you understand? I think I do, Peter says, and it will not do. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Talk about all-time quotes, right? This thing sits right up there in the quotables of the Christian life. In fact, I was thinking last night, it's a great answer to all the allurements of the world. It's a great answer to the, to the lust that exists in our own hearts when it, when it crops its head up and says, do this or don't do this, and, and it, it tempts you to disobey Christ, whether it's right in the sight of God uh, for me to obey you rather than to listen to God, you be the judge. This, this is a great attitude. This is one of those moments That once you hear it, you don't forget it. The nobility of this, the courage of this, the faithfulness of this. You're the Sanhedrin. You're the astute and the educated. You're the highest court in the land. But there is a higher court. And there is a greater judge. And so you judge this. Is it right in the eyes of the righteous judge of the universe to listen to you or to listen to him? What an answer. This is, this is Peter's, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. We cannot stop speaking. Now, why can't they stop speaking? Think about this statement, beloved. We cannot stop speaking. Why? Well, I think essentially it boils down to a couple of things. Number one, duty. These men knew they had been commissioned by God to speak and to bear witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And they cannot stop speaking about what they have seen and what they have heard. It was a matter of obedience plain and simple. You remember those words of Paul. He says them a number of times throughout the epistles. I am under obligation. I am under compulsion, he says to the Corinthians. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 
And secondly, it was not just duty. I believe it was also born of desire or devotion. They were devoted to the Lord. They were devoted to his glory. They wanted to make him known. They were filled, the text says, with the spirit of God, and therefore they were compelled to preach Christ. They had been called by Jesus, raised from spiritual death to life by Jesus. The chains that had bound them to their sin and to eventual judgment and separation from God forever in hell, those chains were broken by Jesus. They'd been powerfully saved by Jesus. They were secured by Jesus, kept for Jesus. They knew they were going to be with Jesus forever. They had a a God-wrought love in their hearts for Christ and for Christians and for sinners who did not know Christ yet. Jesus had brought them peace with God and given them the peace of God. Jesus had given them forgiveness of their sins. Jesus had given them a bright hope for the future. They had this deep love for their fellow sinners and they longed to see people reconciled to God. And so they preached and they appealed, as the Apostle Paul says, with with tears and with begging that they would be reconciled to God. You see, I just think this is what happens when you come to know Christ. There is a passionate compulsion to to see others saved and to lift up the name of Christ. Do you know that in your own life? Do you know inwardly a longing for the salvation of men. Go ahead and nod. Yeah, you do. I know you do. Do you know inwardly that Christ is worthy to be spoken of and identified with? Yeah, yeah, you do. Are you grateful to the to the tip of your toes for all that Christ has done for you, all that he's given to you. He is everything to you. He is the apex of your universe. He is the hub of your life. He is life to you. And you would talk about him much, much, much more if you were to just follow the impulse of your heart. Yes or no? Yeah. You see, I'm not really at this point asking you if you preach Christ often or regularly, but what I'm asking you is, is there something inside of you that wants to and badly? You see, I believe speaking the name of Jesus is in the heart of every believer. That is a longing that comes with the download of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's, we, we've seen this, right? To be filled with the Spirit is to speak of Christ. It's, it's almost hand in hand. Every time you see somebody in the book of Acts filled with the Spirit, immediately you see them speaking of Jesus or speaking the Word of God. We'll come back to that thought in a moment, but I want you to just understand at the outset, listen, this idea of the covert or camouflaged Christian 
that's an oxymoron. Those two words do not exist together. We are light, we are salt, we are to live a life that ordains the gospel that we proclaim. We live out loud. Let's wrap up the episode here before the Sanhedrin. Verse 21, when they had threatened them further, that's just an intensified form of the word that was used earlier. They just got louder and more insistent. They became that threatening, repeating parent who, who, who just gets louder. And then what? Then, then they begin to count. That's one, right? Two, they're really landed on heavy and they could not find anything to charge Peter and John with. And so they, they just let them go. And we're given two reasons that they let them go. The first one there is a parenthetical. You can see it, finding no basis on which to punish them. They hadn't broken any laws. There was a secondary issue, and for these men, it was probably the primary issue, and that is they could not, they let them go because of account of the people. Because the people were glorifying God for what had happened. They believed as did the Sanhedrin, that this was a genuine miracle. They knew it to be true. They rejoiced in the gospel, thousands of them believing in it. And the people were embracing Peter and John and this man. And there was the gladness of God among them. And we're told that the man was more than 40 years old on whom this healing had occurred. And that just, of course, intensifies and points to the fact that this miracle was just that. It was a miracle. Again, the Sanhedrin, think of it. They found no joy in the healing of the man. There are no words here of gladness or encouragement for that man. He was a problem in their eyes. A glaring problem. And that was the same way they were in Jesus' ministry. They were angry with Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath, not because a, man, a man's hand was healed. They were angry with Jesus for all kinds of good things that he did because they were tied up in little knots over, over their little laws, their little man-made adaptations of, uh, of the Pentateuch. They're upset that God is working. They're upset that Jesus is alive and being preached. And they're upset that they have been outdone by a couple of hayseed Galileans who are filled with the spirit of Jesus. And in the grace of God, they've been given another opportunity. In the mercy of God, they were preached to yet again. And yet most of them were as unteachable as ever. What a tragedy for them. But what about us? What can we glean from this example of gospel boldness on the part of Peter and John and this crippled man? I want to give you just four insights and uh, don't, don't scribble them down word for word. Just jot a word here or there to remind yourself. I want to give you four insights that I hope will 
increase your boldness and mine. Number one, gospel boldness is not the result of formal education. But it is because you have been with Jesus and you are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not the result of being a pastor or an an evangelist or an apostle or a prophet or just one of those, those sort of super Christians. It is a matter of, do you know Christ? Have you been with Jesus? And are you filled with the Holy Spirit? You don't need a Bible degree. You don't even need to take a class on evangelism, as good as that would be. It's been well said that if you know enough to be saved by the gospel, you know enough to preach the gospel well enough to see someone saved. What were Peter and John's backgrounds? They were, they were simple men. They were fishermen. They were called by Christ and they were taught his word and they were motivated and empowered by his spirit. And beloved, you are not an apostle, but don't you have all that? Hasn't Jesus called you? Don't you know him by faith through his word? Don't you have his instruction and his encouragement? Haven't you been empowered by that same spirit that indwelled these men? You see, you've been with Jesus. And you've seen him and you've heard him. He's been revealed to you in the pages of scripture. And here's the point. The better you know Christ, the closer you walk with Jesus, the more compelled that you and I will be to to speak of him. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. You remember from Ephesians 5.18 that we're called to what? Be being filled with the Spirit of God which is tied in with the idea of, from Colossians 3.18, of letting the word of Christ, remember he is the spirit of truth, you let the word of Christ dwell richly in you and you live in submission to that word. And that is precisely what Peter's doing. Jesus commanded, you're going to be my witness, you go out and speak about the sufferings of the Christ, his resurrection, and call people to repentance. And we've seen it, haven't we? Three times in the course of, of a day or two. In other words, evangelistic enthusiasm stems from knowing Christ, being in his word, beholding him there, hearing him there, worshiping him, being with him in the word and in prayer. And as he becomes more dominant in the landscape of your life, you will have a consuming passion for him. Most of you know that Susie and I are relatively new grandparents. And we are captivated by those children. And we think you should be too. (laughs) And so we show you pictures. You didn't ask, but we show you. And we, give you, we send you videos. Some of you have gotten a text from me from one of the best videos I've ever seen in my life. It's 20 some odd seconds long. My granddaughter's brilliant. I'll send it all to you later. Anyway, here's, here's, here's the thing. In many ways, evangelism is just that simple. 
you are declaring a Christ and announcing a truth that excites your soul. It is so foundational to who you are that you can't even really know somebody or have them know you without talking about it because it is who you are. And you are speaking and declaring this Jesus and this truth that you are most excited about and you think the people you're talking to ought to be just as excited about it, right? Beloved, again, I'm just gonna ask rhetorical questions that I already know. Is Christ precious to you who are saved? I know the answer to that question. And are you captivated with him? I know the answer to that question. Is he the passion and pursuit of your life? If the answer is no, then well, you're not in Christ. But if you're in Christ, then I know the answer to that question. Do you know that he's the only savior for sinners that mankind has no hope? You know that. And do you long for sinners to be saved? Well, of course you do. So the question then is, why are we so hesitant? Why are we so quiet about it? Why does it stand in our lives like this, this giant wall we can't get over? There are answers to those questions. But I'm not going to provide them for you. I just want to leave you with the question and encourage you because you know Jesus and because you have been with him and because you have seen him and you have heard him, I want to encourage you to be like these disciples. We cannot be silent. Don't suppress those spirit-wrought longings in your soul. Don't hold them down. And be unabashed and be unashamed and be bold because you know this if you've talked to others about Christ. There is no joy like telling others about Jesus. It is one of the sweetest things on earth. We've got to keep moving. Number two, gospel boldness is born of the conviction that you have a calling from God to make Christ known. Gospel boldness is born of the conviction that you have a calling from God to make Christ known and therefore you are compelled both by duty and by delight to speak of him, to obey. And I think Christians, I know I've done it myself for a lot of my life, Christians simply close their eyes to the Great Commission and say, you know, that was given to those guys way back then. I don't think that really applies to me. I'm not an apostle. Well, it does apply to them back then, but beloved, I have good news for you. It applies to you today too, to each of us. What is the church but a city set on a hill? What is the church but a bride awaiting our groomsman, the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the church... <laughs> but the pillar 
of the truth. You, you know this, that, that the church exists. We exist for the propagation of the gospel. Everything else uh, about life can be accomplished out there in the kingdom of heaven, but the one thing we cannot do is preach to sinners. It's here and the time is now to declare the truth as an individual and as a part of this church. Christ's church. Look over real quickly just to Acts chapter 8. We're going to get here, but there's enough time. You'll have forgotten. We'll come back to it. Chapter 8, verse 1, Saul, this is the same man who would become the Apostle Paul in the following chapter. Acts 8, now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that is Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Oh, So we're talking here about a non-apostolic crowd. And they were spread. And it tells us that some devout men buried Stephen and made loud, loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging, note this, the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He was delivering them into prison. Therefore, that sounds scary, doesn't it? House after house, dragging off men and women, delivered to prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the good news of the word. You see, this is what we do, beloved. We are gathered here this morning to worship the risen Christ. We are going to scatter out of here. And as we scatter, we're to go abroad preaching the good news of the gospel. Paul calls all of us to make the most of every opportunity. Colossians 4, 5 and 6. Peter tells us all to be prepared to give a reason for our hope. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Beloved, don't distance from the privilege of sharing the good news with others. This is just Christianity 101. We have a call from God. And you say, well, I I do good works, and don't those speak of Jesus? They sure do. But Paul tells Titus those good works are to be ornamental. They are to adorn the gospel. The gospel is not doing a good work. The gospel is a message about sin and salvation and hope in a crucified and risen Christ. And therefore, we must live our lives well in a manner worthy of our calling to ornament the gospel, but we must speak the gospel that we're to ornament. Does that make sense? As I said a minute ago, I think if you look inside, you're going to see that you are, in fact, inwardly driven by love for Christ and love for your neighbor to preach the gospel, and I would just encourage you, don't suppress it. Ask the Lord for opportunity. Take the opportunity he provides. Take a risk. Invite someone to dinner. Establish a new relationship with an unbeliever with with a prayer and a hope inwardly that that God will in fact use this to, to save yet another sinner. And be courageous. 
Remember that courage is not the absence of fear. I think sometimes we keep waiting for that. I'm going to wait till the day that I'm just confident. In my experience, it's not the way it goes. You acknowledge the fear. You say, Lord, help me to forsake it and help me to stride forward by faith in confidence that you will enable me to be faithful to my call to declare the glories of Christ. And I will tell you that courage will beget courage. You will get better at it. Number three, gospel boldness results from understanding the hardness of the unregenerate heart. Gospel boldness comes from understanding that sinners have rock-hard hearts. And this is something, again, that I know most of you affirm theologically But truth be told, we don't really believe it down in the core of our being. And I think what betrays that is the fact that that when people don't receive our preaching, we tend to go away with a tail between our legs thinking, what did we do wrong? How could I have messed that? I'm no good at this. It's uncomfortable and it's challenging and I couldn't answer all their questions and I I forgot the resurrection. I mean, you do this stuff, don't you? I do. You must understand and you must arm yourself with the reality that apart from a gracious work of the Holy Spirit, men are stone cold dead in their trespasses and sins. They are utterly unable to respond to the gospel apart from the work of the Spirit in their life. They are blinded by the truth and they cannot and they desire not to move even one spiritual muscle in the direction of Jesus. You are that dependent upon God for anyone's salvation. You rightfully believe that there are none who seek for God. No, not one. And so you go home blaming you and you grow discouraged and disheartened and you feel like you're just not good at this and you're about to give it up. And I want to say to you again, precious people in Christ, all of that is very wrong-headed. Let me ask you, do you you think Peter and John left the Sanhedrin that day? Thinking, you know, Peter, if you hadn't been quite so hard, if you would temper your directness, directness, just just a fuzz, talk more generally about sin. I mean, did you have to tell them they were the builders who, who rejected the stone and crucified the Messiah? Couldn't we have just left it with the Romans? I don't think they spoke for two seconds like that. I don't think they thought about how could, we, how could we have couched this or crafted this gospel to make it more palatable. We, we got to take a class, right? Listen, if you have a theological understanding of man's sinful predisposition against God, it should not discourage us. It really shouldn't. It should grieve us, but not discourage us in the work when people reject the truth. In fact, it should encourage us in the work. Why? Well, for two reasons. One, 
you know that man's prejudice against God and the gospel will, will leave you with a realistic expectation of the fact that much of the time, what? They're going to reject you. And you just can't be so fragile. Are we that fragile that we, we just can't be rejected? <laughs> I just can't be rejected. Really? Come on. We know us. Of course we can be rejected. And we should expect that Christ will many times be rejected. But there's a second reason we should be encouraged, and it's this. You know that the gospel is the power of God to overcome that resistance by the Holy Spirit. And that should set us free to leave the saving to him. The Bible says that salvation is of the Lord. And therefore, you are not to set out to try and get a convert or to save somebody. Your calling and mine is to just be faithful about the truth and in love to declare it to people. We know that the gospel is the power of God to salvation and therefore it is not about our eloquence or our power of reasoning. And to some we're told we will be the aroma of what? Death to death. But to others, the aroma of life to life. You have that promise. So far from being a hindrance to our zeal and our boldness, listen, the sovereign work of God in grace gives us our only hope of success in evangelism. And that should make you bold or bolder. Fourth, finally and briefly, Gospel boldness flourishes when we are engaged in the work together. Now, this may be a stretch from the text, but it was Peter and John and the crippled man. It was not one on 70, it was three on 70. And that feels good, doesn't it? I can't prove it, but I'm going to guess that they were thankful to run the gauntlet together. They were thankful to be in prison together. They were thankful to stand before all those staring eyes together. And there is encouragement in corporate commitment to the work. We, we live as a church, at least this is our prayer, that we will live with a constancy of purpose. It will always be before us to lift up Christ in this area and around the world. And we're going to see this in the weeks ahead, that there was much encouragement in the fellowship of the church. Listen, here, here, here's the point. The work of evangelism is the work of the church. Many hands make light work. We pray together. We give together. We send together. We encourage one another. We proclaim the gospel in church, and we declare it outside of church, and we are all about this great commission we've been given. And as we all labor in the work, and as we all urge one another on, and as we, I just, there, nothing in my week makes me gladder than when somebody comes to me and says, Dave, I need you to pray for me. I've been speaking with so-and-so, a friend that I met someplace, and man, sometimes I find myself just not knowing what to say, but I really want them to come to Christ. Could you pray for me and pray for them? 
I'm ready to go out and shout when I hear that kind of thing. And when I don't hear it, I'm ready to get out of the ministry. I'll be frank with you. Friends, I'm not disappointed in you. Don't take it that way at all. What is the point I'm making? That this is our work together and much encouragement comes from all of us being involved. Some of us will speak more than others. Some of us will be hospitable and open our doors to the speakers. Some of us will serve in a million and myriad of different ways. But the bottom line is that all of us at some level should be preachers of truth and livers of truth. And that as we do this together, we are combining a bunch of individual lights to make this bright halogen sea light like a like a, like a, what do they call those things out there? I, I'm at the end of this sermon. I can't come up with it. It's a lighthouse. We are a lighthouse to help people understand you're going to run aground if you don't come to Christ. You see, all of that motivates us. I ask you again, as I always do whenever we talk about evangelism, beloved, how grateful are you for those who took the risk, who were emboldened by the Holy Spirit to speak the truth so that the gospel would come to your ears. Will you be that for somebody else? May God stir our gospel boldness so that the name of Jesus would be lifted high whether we are gathered here or scattered abroad for there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name which has been given under heaven by which we must be saved. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Our Father, we're thankful for this inspiring example of the apostles under the filling and the control of the Holy Spirit who declared your name so boldly. We ask that you would help us to do likewise, again, for the great glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.